everybody, and welcome to a special bonus episode of A Journey Through Stock Aitken Waterman. We're about to dive into the 1990s, but we're going to pause for a moment to look back at the 80s one last time, aren't we, Matthew Demby? We certainly are, Gavin Scott, and what a decade. Although Saw went on to have a bunch of landmark hits in the 90s, their legacy is definitely most associated with the 1980s. And that's a decade which, to me, will always feel like the most fun and creative one in music. This episode, we've got a great way of reviewing and capping off the story of Saw in the 80s from a very different perspective. We're hearing from a voice that's very rarely been heard, that of a legendary PWL engineer, Yo-Yo. Now, he was there for all the big moments in the 80s, and as we'll soon hear, he had an unsung role in a few of PWL's landmark records too. I just can't wait for that. Did you see what I did there, Gavin? I think you're going to have a very positive reaction to what he has to say. Now, yes, Yo-Yo was part of the PWL team for most of the story we've told so far, working his way up through the ranks. And we've had in mind that we should speak to him for a long time now, so it's great to be able to add him to the list of PWL insiders that we've heard from. Yeah, the name Yo-Yo is instantly recognisable to any Saw fan who ever read the liner notes on their records. He's prominently listed on so many of their hits. He was also often coupled with fellow engineer Karen Hewitt, making them sound like a legendary PWL duo, the Sonny and Cher of the vineyard, perhaps. <laughs> and Yo-Yo was a pretty cool name, so who could forget it? That's right. So who is Yo-Yo? He was born at Boyawa Alugbo, and he earned the nickname Yo-Yo during his school years, and it stuck, becoming the name he went under professionally when he started working at PWL in the first half of 1986 as an assistant. Right, let's hear now from Yo-Yo about his early days at PWL and working with some of the big artists of Saw's early run, through to him forming remix team The Extra Beat Boys with fellow assistant Jamie Bromfield. How did you get the job at PWL and what were your first responsibilities? I was going to college and I was studying my A-levels and I was working in, I was working in Sainsbury's in the UK. <laughs> And I knew that that I I didn't want to do that. I knew I wanted to be in the music industry because I was, you know, because I played piano. I was, you know, a trained pianist at school and so forth. And I wanted to be in the music industry, but I didn't know. I didn't know how to. So a friend of mine said, you should go and work in the studio. I thought, oh, okay. And I found this book. It had every single recording studio in London. I thought between... Between college and working in um, Sainsbury's in the evening, I would go and visit all the studios in London over the course of a few weeks. And that's what I did. I got my CV together and I literally every day I would say, I'm going to go to this studio, I'm going to go to this studio, I'm going to go to this studio. And that's what I did. I went to every studio in London. There was a studio called The Workhouse in Old Kent Road. And The Workhouse was Pete Hammond's studio. And he said to me, oh... You know, I would give you a job, but we don't really need um, an assistant or tape pop at the at the moment. But I know there's a studio opening in the borough. Why not I give you the address and you can, you know, you should go there. And that's what I did. Went to the borough, the Vineyard Studios, and I just went there and just said, have you got a job? <laughs> I was, I was what, 17? And they took my number. They took my, no, they took my details and they said, you should call, call David Howes in, I don't know, in a week or so time. And that's what I did. And I called and I called and I called until I got through to David Howes. And I eventually got an interview, went in and I got the job because they were obviously at the time, it was a new studio. 
they were looking for a system. It wasn't, it wasn't actually an engineer assistant. It was a tape op, a tape operator. So, but you're not, you're not operating the tape. That's a, you know, a euphemism from the um, 70s, but essentially you're a gopher. You're just, you know, you're going to the shop, getting sandwiches and making tea and cleaning up. That's, that's what you did. So, yeah. So I got a job there would have been about May 86. Yeah. Pete Day told me that he used to have to move people's cars. Yeah. And we would, and what we would do, I remember, so Mike had a, a Jaguar XJS, Matt had a Ferrari eventually, and we just used to, you know, all that we're doing is just like moving them in and out, but we just used to take them around the block. <laughs> we used to drive them around the block and none of us had any driving license licenses, but we were just driving them around the block and it was just, um, yeah. And there was a, there was a few scratches and bangs on the cars that's for sure it's like that scene in ferris bueller yeah exactly exactly it's exactly like that when did you get into the studio do you remember the first session that you're actually in the studio or the first artist i can't remember the first session the engineer was a guy called mike waldron and he had come from can't remember the studio. he had come from the studio that that um suffocating waterman prior to move into the vineyard and it wasn't a case that I was assisting. I was in the. I was just in the studio. I was just like in the corner, and whenever somebody wanted coffee or tea and stuff, they would just you know just kind of wink and say you know off you go, go and make it. But I really started to become a um, an assistant with um, Mark Mark McGuire, and I would start to assist him. And I think it was Dead or Alive. I think was one of the um, with the first they did. Is it Mad, Bad, Danger? I can't remember what it was called yeah, yeah. now. Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know. Yeah, Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know. So I think that was one of the first albums that I was assisting on. That was a great album. That was, because you remember Dead or Alive, there's four of them, you know, and Pete Burns is such a massive character as well. And then you've got Mike and Matt, just like the activity. It was just, it was so busy. Just, I just remember every day there was just, there was just so much, so much to do. And there were so many different personalities and it was just, you know, and I'm, I'm probably over 18 by that time. And it's just, the energy was just amazing. It was just, it was just incredible. It was a, it was a full day. I mean, you're in there at 10 o'clock and you finish at 10 at night and you do not stop. You literally do not stop. And you're just constantly busy. So I, that was one of my first kind of recollections of, actually been in the studio. And was it tense? I mean, we hear all these stories about Dead or Alive and Stock Aiken and Waterman and, and a bit of a clash of personalities sometimes. Yeah. Mike with Pete, there was clashes. But, you know, it was it was creative clashes. It wasn't, you know, there was no animosity or, you know, anger or anything. It was just it was just creative clashes. And then there's Matt, obviously, with the musicians, and then there's creative clashes there. And then Steve was the complete antagonist. He'd be in the middle, just always just, you know, either backing Pete off or clashing with Mike and Matt. And then Pete would come in and, you know, then the flipping bomb would go off. And it was just, no, it was fun. And But I, I really got on with Dead or Alive. I got, you know, I got on with Steve especially. And I really connected with with Pete because he was from Liverpool. They were from Liverpool, weren't they? And, they, mm. and, I, and my, my team was Liverpool and they just always used to take the mick out of me. It's like, why is a Londoner supporting Liverpool? You know, like, <laughs> Because it is. You could say the same for somebody who lives in flipping Saudi Arabia supporting support in Liverpool. What what's that? So yeah, so we would have banter there, but yeah, it was look, you can't be in a recording studio and not have banter. 
if you can't take banter, you can't give it, then you're in the wrong business. It's really simple. You are in the wrong business. It's, it's all about banter in a recording studio. Stock Aiken Waterman became known for, and I guess we're talking about Mike and Matt here, known for the singers who would come in, sing their bits, and off they go. But I kind of tend to think that when they were faced with someone like Dead or Alive and there was that push and pull, you actually got maybe not better stuff, but you got really good stuff because there was that fire. You're right. You, you got... When you're creative and somebody's challenging you, you either have to um, say no. And if you say no, then you've got to explain why. Or you say, okay, let's give it a try. And you're right. And that's where greatness comes from. It's just creatives pushing each other to the, you know, to the limits where they're saying to each other, can we do better? Is this good enough? Let's try it. If not, okay, fine. Let's come back. But you're right. It's, Every now and again, you we would get artists that would come in and would and they would and Mike and Matt would get challenged. But you're right, a majority of them just came and sang a song and then just went home. Do you remember anyone else who challenged them? I know Laura Brannigan wanted to sing things a certain way. Laura Brannigan, I think the biggest challenge challenger for me that I saw was Donna Summer. Yeah, that was that was very difficult, that one. I found that they because and the only reason why, because Donna Summer is Donna Summer. You're talking about a living legend here. She's seen it. She's done it. She's worked with the biggest. She's had the biggest hits. She's had records that are still being played today and will be played in 10, 20, 30 years time. That was a real challenge for them because at one point the whole session just stopped because she wanted something different. And I think her manager, her manager was her husband, I think, if I Mm. remember rightly. She wanted something different and she probably wanted something more of the same of what she was, you know, used to. And I remember, and I was actually in the room, and it was all three of them. It was all Matt, Mike, and Pete, and Donna, and her husband. I can't remember who the engineer was, but I was in there. I remember I was in, and it was a case of Pete telling Donna that this is what we do. We do it really well. You will have success. You will have number ones. You will have success with the way that we do things. This is what we do. And if you don't like it, then it's not a problem. You know, we're not going to, you know, lose our friendship over it. But this is what we do. We're not going to about to do Love to Love You Baby again. Or, you know, I feel like we're not doing that. That's not, this is 19, I don't know, 88 or whatever. So there was that, there was that clash. And I think when she just kind of just said, okay, do what you do. The sessions became a lot, a lot better. It was a lot easier. Now, in the early days, you were part of the Extra Beat Boys with Jamie. How did that come around, that kind of partnership? Because I know it evolved and the extra Beat Boys became Mm. different people at different times. But was it you two originally? Were you two the original extra Beat Boys? Yeah, it was just me and Jamie. Me and Jamie coming in at nights or, no, more than likely over the weekends, just like literally staying there, sleeping there. We wouldn't go home. We'd We'd just work. Because I think the reason why I came on pretty quickly as an engineer was I would kind of watch the engineers during the day whether or not it would be you know because I kind of graduated to sitting with Phil Harding and watching him mix I would be his assistant I would sit right next to him 
at the desk. I wouldn't make tea. I wouldn't, I was at that time, the assistant engineer, you know, I'd be editing tape. I'd be cutting the half inch, doing all of that. So I'd watch him during the day. And then at weekends, I would apply what I was watching, what I was seeing, because the only way you you get to know as a sound engineer is by doing and hit and listening. So it was a case of doing and go, oh, that's what that does. Okay, fine. Because the studios, because it wasn't a commercial studio, you know, it wasn't a studio where you can go and hire. It was like, this was their studio. So they didn't work weekends. So I would come in, me and Jamie would come in and then all that we would do would just get, you know, we would just get tracks that they'd be, you know, that maybe they were working on. We'd just get the the tape up, the um, the half inch. And we'll just make, you know, we'll just make up our own drum beat, make up our own bass and just, you know, just see what happens. And then, I mean, Mandy Smith is obviously the one that kind of really took off. I mean, that was just, that was just a labour of love, man. And then I think we started it. I think Pete maybe heard it and just thought, wow. And then he got Matt to come in and play guitar on it. And then it just kind of like went from there. And then we did, we ended up doing Dollar, Ola More. That actually became the single. Um, Our mix became the single. And we were just like, we didn't really know what was going on. We were just doing it because we loved it. You know, we weren't looking for, we, we didn't get paid for anything. Never got paid for anything. We did one song and it just blew up. It like, I think it may have been Dollar, actually. And then what happened, I think Stop Caking and Waterman put their name on it and not the extra Beat Boys. And then, like, everyone in the company actually got really pissed off because everyone was like, but you didn't do anything. You didn't... Because Matt played guitar on it, they put their name on it and it went top five. Our, you know, our mix, not the original, our mix went top five. And I think everyone got really, really a bit, you know, that was a bit cheeky. And it was, I, I think for us at that point, we were like, okay, that's a bit unfair, but hey-ho, it is what it is. And then we just ended up doing lots of other different mixes for other artists. Let's go back to the Mandy one quickly. So where did the inspiration come for that? Because, yeah, the, the cool and breezy jazz version is like legendary. Again, it was just us messing about in the studio, just being creative. We're in the studio for the whole, you know, Saturday and Sunday, all day, all night. And we were just having fun, you know, where two young men, just all of these toys and we're just experimenting and we're just... We're just having fun. I look back on those at those times of there's there's no aspirations to be or do anything here. All that we're doing is just we're in this environment that we are so lucky to be in and we are just creating. We just there's no limitations to what we could do. We just honestly, it was just a case of us just just having fun until we got something that we really liked and we realized I could work and then you just embellish on, you know, we just embellish on that and we just went with it. And it's, you know, it's, I don't know how long this, I think it's about six, seven minutes that that mix, but <laughs> it was just us having, honestly, having fun and enjoying what we were doing. And Pete was really encouraging of that, wasn't he? Like he'd give you all like keys to the studio basically to say, yeah, yeah. go, go for it. Absolutely. He was, he was very much a case of, 
I want you to just, you know, it's there, use it. Otherwise, it's just going to be empty. Obviously, don't abuse it. Leave it as as you found it. People would come in and they wouldn't know that somebody was in there. It's just, you you know, you would have to make it spotless. And you know what? It wasn't as if, you know, it wasn't like we were inviting our friends to come in and, you know, sit in the studio. And I was like, no, it was just, it was just me and Jamie. And we were just, yeah, they were, they were special times, but just, just being creative. And we're just in the studio, just, just making music. And it was um, a lot of fun. Right, that was so fascinating hearing about that legendary Mandy remix. So many people call that one of the coolest mixes that ever came out of PWL, and for good reason, because it's pretty great. It's always fascinating to hear how remixes that radically remade the original pop version came to be, and let's be honest, the cool and breezy jazz mix is pretty much a completely new record, which only uses fragments of the pop version. Now that involves a lot of talent. To hear that Yo-Yo didn't get paid for that, well, it's not surprising because that's how the industry often works. Yeah, and speaking of music industry machinations, it was interesting to hear Yo-Yo's side of the situation with Dollars Ola Moore. And looking at Discogs, there are certainly some UK releases that give Saw a production and mixing credit, and others that just have a mixing credit for extra beat boys, and some have both. So I'm guessing original pressings went out with Saw credited before it was realised that the extra beat boys deserved their dues. Yeah, well, not getting what he felt was a proper credit for the dollar record, that would have really stung. But despite disappointments like that, Yo-Yo was definitely on the way up as the 80s rolled on, and he was soon working with Mike and Matt as an engineer. Let's hear how Yo-Yo made that step into what he calls the hot seat, and he'll also talk about a few of the artists who were also seeing their lives change dramatically as 1986 became 1987. I think it was either Duffy or Mark McGuire... Um, had left or was leaving and Mike and Matt they asked Phil out of all the assistants in the tape ops here who is the next one to you know to step up who can step up to the mark and um, Phil suggested me Phil said that um, Yo-Yo is the is the most capable which didn't please there was a few others that were before me and had been there for a while but I think for the fact that we were doing the extra beat boys kind of just meant that I had a an ear for for sound. Because the thing with a sound engineer, it's not just about doing the tweaks. It's just, you know, I was quite musical purely because I, you know, because I um, played an instrument, but then I could also edit as well. I was a master editor. You know, now you can just edit things in Logic. Those days you had to edit it on tape. I don't think there was anyone that could edit the tape like I could. So, so Phil actually said, you know, Yo-Yo can, he's, he's very musical. He can edit, he can chop up. Yeah. He's the, he's the one that I would recommend. And, you know, Phil was there, he was their um, mixer. So Pete's going to listen to him. And yeah, I, I stepped up into the big seat and was terrified. It was terrifying because it was, yeah, it was terrifying. And what was it like in the studio? I mean, cause we hear the process of, you know, Monday, they start the song and then Tuesday, Wednesday, then the artist would be in on, on the Wednesday or whatever. And then the next Monday, it'd be done because it would be mixed Thursday, Friday, whatever. Was it stressful or was it just a process that you just got on with it? Or like, how did you find it being in that environment? 
It was a stressful process for me right at the beginning. I, I went from assisting to I'm in the hot seat. You know, I'm flying the plane here. You get it wrong, you crash. And there were times I would go home at the very beginning and just think, I can't do this. It's just because it was really, really stressful. You know, you're recording artists that you're seeing on top of the pops and hearing on the radio, you know, you can't mess this up. And there was one, there was one occasion where I had over-compressed, I think it was Banana Rama, I can't remember what song it was. I'd over-compressed the vocal to tape where really you shouldn't read if you're compressing to tape then just do it as minimal as possible you don't need to add that much compression you can do it after because if you compress to tape it's done and and it's wrong it's it's i i'd compressed too much to tape we knew that and it was a case of what are we going to do because you know i i remember going home just thinking i, I i'm, I'm going to get sacked i know i'm going to get sacked and then i came back the next day and i just said okay we're gonna have to do it again you know, match just like, just don't do that again. I do it again. So that was, you know, that was a big lesson. It never happened again. It happens once, never happened again. And I think that was the turning point for me where, okay, I've got this. I'm, I've, I've got control of this. I know what to do now. So yeah, it's, 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 it was, um, it was a stressful environment. It's, you know, it really was because you're in the studio with some of the biggest artists in the country at the time. When that happened, were they, cool about it or did they lose it i think they coolly lost it but they were <laughs> they, they they realized that it was you know um that you know they realized that i'd messed up and i realized that I, I i knew that and they were cool with that and it's you know it's it's one thing messing up but it's another thing not knowing that you've messed up i knew that i'd messed up and i told them i i, I told them okay I, I know what i did it's like it's fine that won't happen again but no they were cool with that after that and how did you find their dynamic? I've spoken to them both, not together, and <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of picking up a sense of, of how they got on, but what were they like as a, as a double act? I thought that they were just two people that had known each other for so long. And I think for them, after a while, it just started to become a process, you know, just formulaic. And I think towards the end, or when I was, you know, kind of like leaving, I think it started, the music started to sound like that as well just it sounded like a process and they just got on with it i mean why wouldn't you it's you know you're having incredible success i don't think there's any production team in the uk that's been had the amount of success that they've had since i didn't i didn't see any i didn't feel any tension and i was you know and i was there with them you know i'd, I'd have them either side of me and it was a creative process you know they are two people that are perfectionists about what they do and how they want to do it and what they want to achieve. And it was all about the music. Let's talk about some of the artists. So Mel and Kim. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a really sad one for me because mm. I was assisting, I was still assisting at that time. And I remember going to, I was going to around the calf, went by the borough tube station. And I remember seeing this, this girl, I remember seeing Mel and I just thought I was, I was probably, you know, I was a young boy that I was a young, young man. And I just remember seeing this unbelievably stunning woman. I was like, wow, is that? I went to the, um, got the sandwiches, came out and I'm looking at her. She's looking at me and then brought the sandwiches back. And then probably about half an hour later, I saw her that she was in the, you know, in the studio. She, she was obviously waiting for her sister. And then they came in and we got on 
we got on so we just you know it was it was instant just it was just instant just laughing laughing mel was just an incredible person and we just got on really well and you know moving on from that i remember there was a point where they wanted to come into the studio and do some um they just wanted to kind of get their ideas down together and they wanted me to help them do it you know i wasn't an engineer at this time i was just i was still the assistant and we had planned to go into the studio on a Saturday night and they had done a photo session and she had a Polaroid, Mel had a Polaroid, and she'd written on the back of a Polaroid, can't wait for Saturday night, yo-yo, love Mel. And I remember coming into the studio on a Saturday and she didn't turn up. And I was like, okay, and I just kind of carried on. And I think a few days later, there was an announcement that, you know, Mel was really ill. And I kind of thought, okay, that's why she didn't turn up. Moving on from that, when she really got quite ill and, you know, she'd kind of like lost her hair. And I think they came in and did, did a session, a couple of sessions, in fact. And no one was allowed in the building, let alone the studio. The only people that were allowed in the building were Matt, Mike and Pete and me. Mel didn't want, she didn't want anyone around. And so there was a time that there was coming. And so everyone like finished work and everyone had to leave. And I was really honoured that they were like, we just want Yo-Yo to be in the studio. So I saw her in a way, you know, no, but most people didn't really see her. And it was, um, it was just heartbreaking to go from the success and the fun that they had for life just to strike somebody down like that. It was really touching. It was, you know, and I was still a young, I was, I was, must have probably been 19, 20 or whatever. But one minute she's there and the next minute she's not. And you just think, Wow. So that was, yeah, I, you know, I think out of all of the, out of all of the artists that I'd worked with, I think with Mel and Kim, Donna Summer were quite profound for me because Donna, you know, Donna, you know, me and Donna stayed in contact after that as well, after they made the recording. And, you know, you think this is a legend. I mean, Donna Summer is an absolute flipping legend, you know, to still be making contact with, you know, so those are the two profound moments for me and 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 with Dead or Alive to be fair and Pete Burns I got on really well with Pete just you know he was really inspiring we would sit down and have conversations about life and just I don't know if people realize that he was highly intelligent really really intelligent probably had a really high IQ but he was really intelligent don't let his foolery fool you he was intelligent oh he, yeah you, you can tell when you listen to him and in old interviews and things what about Rick? Were you a tape up around the same time as Rick? Oh, God. God, yeah, that's another story. My God. So, like, during the Extra Beat Boys days, so Rick would come in in the studio in the evenings as well. And sometimes he'd just sit on the sessions with me and Jamie, just playing around in the studio, watching what we were doing, just coming in on, on the sessions, sometimes with Pete. And Rick was just, I didn't even know I didn't even ask, but I didn't know he was, you know, being groomed to be this artist. And then all of a sudden he stopped and then he started to go in the studio. And I just remember hearing him for the first time and just thinking, what? <laughs> Pardon? Excuse me? That's you. So, yeah, Rick was... Um, he was he was so quiet as well. It was, it was just like, you know, Rick wouldn't... He wouldn't say boo to a goose, but this incredible amount of talent 
It was it was special. It was um, I didn't have the relationship that um, I'd had with a few of the other artists, but I mean, just phenomenal, just phenomenal what he, you know, um, what he had achieved. I know it must have been funny when suddenly as a colleague or you know somebody in your peer group, and then suddenly it's like, oh, okay, you're a yeah. singer. Oh my gosh, you're number one. And he showed me his first PRS check. I'm not going to say what it was, but he was just like, what the what what do I do with all of this? It was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. <laughs> Great stuff there from Yo-Yo. I was really fascinated and moved by his recollections of Mel and Kim, especially. Now, long-term listeners will know just how sacred that time was for me. I just adored Mel and Kim and that album. Yo-Yo recalling first seeing Mel on the street and being struck by her presence was such a great detail because it just shows what special charisma she had. And again, as when we spoke to Pete Hammond, we hear of the staff initially having no idea that Rick Astley could sing and was destined to become a huge star. He was just a co-worker for them for a very long time. Could you imagine everyone's shock when Rick blew up and became huge? And speaking of icons, now we'll hear Yo-Yo talking about Kylie Minogue and his memories of the infamous I Should Be So Lucky session as we head into 1988. Kylie, Kylie was my best mate. I mean, I eventually went, I was her sound engineer. I don't know if you know, I, when she went on the Enjoy Yourself tour of probably 1990, worldwide tour, I was her front of house sound engineer. And she, you know, she specifically asked Pete, can I take Yo-Yo on tour with me? Because he knows the music, he knows me. And Pete said, yeah. So I went, oh, I don't know how many months I went, but for me, it was very changing because I came back and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. Not in the studio anyway. So I went, you know, we went to Australia, Europe, Japan. I mean, it was a what? it was Malaysia. It was incredible. Kylie's just, yeah, Kylie was, I was there right at the beginning of her um her career and as you it wasn't it wasn't reception it's called the missile room it was the room right next to the, the studio the studio at the top the vocal studio and pete for some reason had an extra set missiles you know in the <laughs> ceiling I, I don't know why you would do that but obviously so we'd call it the missile room and i remember just going back and forth like this small petite woman just sitting there and i just remember going into the studio and saying you know that there's this girl up there and it's like, yeah, we know we're, we're doing it now. <laughs> we're writing it now. Like literally we are writing it now. <laughs> she was there for hours. We're writing it now. And it was, I should be so lucky, like there and there. So, you know, those stories where you hear sometimes, oh yeah, we, you know, we wrote it in 20 minutes. It's like, you know, songwriters and producers talking about how they created something. It's, it was the same scenario. They just, they just created it just out of nowhere. Creativeness just everything that they had all of their probably up to that point 20 years or whatever of being creative was in that moment all came to pass that was it because that artist eventually took them worldwide didn't it she changed everything she changed everything exactly
8788, Sabrina, Sunita, Rama, Jason, Brother Beyond as well. Mm-hmm. So many tracks, so many hits. Hazel, any standout memories of any of those artists? Any favourite tracks that you just loved? Rama, I loved working with them. The boys really did some great tracks. I heard a rumour, I, I still listen to that today. That's just, I think that's a phenomenal record. Rama, I think, was like one of the first um, albums that I'd recorded that was one of the, you know, the album I nearly lost my job because I compress the vocals too much. <laughs> so that whole album, I mean, there were some great tracks on that album, but I Heard a Rumour stands out for me. And I, you know, I, I remember recording it just like, this is going to be huge. They were great girls to work with. It was a bit contentious between them and, and Mike and Matt yeah. sometimes as well, wasn't it? What was that like? The thing with Matt, you've got a, Matt is an alpha male. I don't know if you've probably got that. So, you know, with alpha males and strong women, you're going to have clashes. It's a case of who's giving up here because I'm not giving up. It's like, well, I'm not giving up either. And it's like, and it, it was just clashing all the time. And I think Mike was just in the middle, just kind of just like, let's just get on with it. Shut up. Stop talking. Just get on with it. <laughs> so, but Matt was always going to lose because you've got three girls. You know, you've got three, there's three of you. There was a whole lot of sessions with Bananarama that didn't end up coming out. There were all these songs, like One in a Million was one, uh, Love Generation, Wake Up and Love Me, I Don't Care. Love Generation. How do you know that? Do you remember that period where they were trying to make stuff work and, I don't know, were Bananarama just going, nut, not good enough? I think Bananarama at that point were going through a phase of trying to identify themselves. But then what happens with artists, artists want to try and start to take creative control of where they're going and what they're doing. And you tend to find that a lot with people that are not the artists that don't really write their songs. And then obviously Mike and Matt, Mike and Matt are songwriters, they're songwriter producers. That's what they do. When you try and come and in the middle of that process, it just gets messy. It's just, you know, Mike's just, for Mike, it's just not going to work. It's just not going to work. It's like, I don't, that's, I, I don't work like that. There's, there's no point. It's, you're almost making me redundant, but redundant to the point of this, I can't have this song come out because it's not good enough. Because it's clear that we've had a co-write or a co-production. It's just not going to work. It's just, you know, the only way that that's going to work is if the person or the artist is bigger than them, you know, whether it's a Cliff Richard or or a Donna Summer or, or a Paul McCartney, or it's, it's just not going to work. I suppose it is. It's a clash of egos, isn't it? It's that's it's it's a clash of egos, and and Mike Mike's ego is massive. You know, in a in a you know in a good way. Okay, Matt, there's only one year left to cover and it's one we've spent the last few months discussing ourselves. Yes, 1989, the year that changed everything. Absolutely massive success and some unfortunate turns as well. And I know Yo-Yo has a lot to say on the latter. Keywords, Big Fun and the Reynolds Girls. 1989, we had Sonia, Big Fun, Reynolds Girls. And I mean, you're laughing already. What are your memories of that year and, and you know, these new artists who were coming into the studios? The Reynolds girls. Yeah. I, I mean, everyone in the company or studio that just thought that that was just a joke. 
that's when people up until that point, you know, no one would really criticize or make fun or make suggestions and stuff, but they would just get to the point, you know, bands like, you know, Big Fun, Reynolds Girls, we, it was almost as if we were becoming a joke. It's like, really? It's just, they were still hits, but you're starting to lose your credibility a bit. But I think, I think Sonia saved them that year because that was a massive record. And I knew when we were recording that, I knew that that was going to, that was a, because it had a bit of, it kind of went back to their, you know, quality. It's like, this is a good, whether you like it or not, or whether you're into pop music or whatever, it doesn't matter. This is a good record. It's a quality, it's well produced, it's well written, it's mixed, it's, you know, it's a great sounding record. Um, So I think that, you know, that saved that year for them. You know, you said people in the company were starting to question it. Was there a sense of why are we working with these people? Yeah, 100%. Who is this person? Who is, it just feels like you're just, you're just going on the street and just asking people, can you sing? And just bringing them in. It was, it was a sense of that, that there was no, it didn't feel like that there was any direction. It, and it almost felt like there wasn't, you could look at Rick and Rick was, Rick was a slow burner because he was, we knew at some point that he was going to come to the forefront and there didn't seem to be any building, you know, who's the next person that's coming up? Who's the next band? Are we grooming people? Are we developing? Or are we just going out and seeing what's out there? I think that was their biggest flaw where they didn't develop enough. And, you know, there were people within the business that were trying to do that because Stock and Waterman could not, they couldn't do it all, all of the time. So who are the next producers that are coming up? Who are the next artists that are coming up? Why are you not molding them maybe into what you're, who you are and, and more? So PWL continues and the longevity of, of, of PWL as a, as a brand continues, but they didn't do that. Band-Aid 2, what are your memories of the weekend recording that? Chaos. There's just people everywhere. Sheer chaos. It was absolute chaos. And and Pete was just obviously doing Pete Waterman, doing the biggest, you know, this is my studio, this is my this, my that. And I know, I just remember Matt and Mike were just, because they were just stuck in the studio and Pete was just doing all this, all this smoozing. And that's where the animosity started to creep in. It was quite, it was, started, it was quite apparent then. I could see that. I could see that because I was quite, I was very close to Matt and Mike and, you know, it just felt like Matt and Mike just felt like we were doing all the work while Pete's getting all the credit. But there was also the backlash by then from the media, from the public, in part to people like Reynolds Girls and Big Fun and, and, and people like that. Did that backlash impact the environment in PWL? Individuals, certain individuals were realising that there's no more room. I can't go anywhere here I'm going to have to leave Phil and Ian started to think like that I definitely started to think like that I remember coming when I because I'd gone away with Kylie on a world tour and then I came came back and I knew that I couldn't go back into that same environment doing the same thing and the thing for the first time when a couple of my friends like just oh you, you know those records just always sound the same and I'm like no they don't no they don't they're all very different and I remember on the radio Maybe it was Rick, maybe it was Rick Astley. You know, you know the um the intro. So you've got the Tom. The Tom Toms come from a, a synth, Juno. 
little Juno keyboard that was on all never moved, same keyboard, same tom sounds. We had, you know, and I know it's the same tom sounds because I used the same EQ. There was a channel on the desk that you didn't touch because that was the toms. So all the toms always sound the same unless Pete or Phil would put them through, I don't know, a phaser or something, whatever. And I was list- I was driving to work and they played a record. Let's say it was Rick Astley, Tom intro. And then they segued into another PWO, Stock Hating Autumn production. And it had another Tom intro, but it was a different record. And I thought it was the same record. I thought, oh, why are they playing the same record? And it wasn't. It was two different records. But for the first time, I, at that point, I was like, oh, my God. I've just heard what my friends have heard. And that, for me, was quite very much a turning point of, okay, it's just there's, I've got to move on now. key thing here Gavin is there was no there was no foundation for bringing up you know Pete always used to compare PWL to Motown but the difference with Motown Motown had other songwriters they had other producers that they were molding so that they could keep the Motown sound going but maybe in a different way PWL never had that they didn't have that it was, you know, I got to the point of there's nothing, I can't do anything anymore. It's like, I've done it. I've recorded all the artists. I've kind of done my own little production thing. So unless I'm producing, what am I going to do? And, you know, and it got really, when I was, you know, when I was leaving or when I was having a, and I had to sat down with a conversation with them. And, and I think, you know, Mike said to me, oh, so you think that you can be a songwriter now? And, you know, you think you can go and do it yourself. And I just, and I got really, I got upset about that because it wasn't that. It's like, no, I don't think I can do it myself. And I'm not trying to emulate what you're doing. It's just, it's just that I've just reached. I can't go anywhere. There's nothing else for me to do. I'm bored at what I do. I've, I've done it now. I'm, I've done it. Can't expect me to come in every day and engineer the same things or maybe make me the mixer. But that was their flaw. And it was, you know, and I still feel that that was their, their chink in the armor that they did not develop up and coming producers or songwriters to carry on the PWL name. There's no vision. There was no evolution. They just kept on doing the same thing and it was just boring. It's just, you know, times move on and unless you're moving on and changing with it, then you're just going to become a dinosaur. How would you sum up working with Mike and Matt? Moving on to my career after that, I I think that I probably for about 10 years of being, you know, freelance. I took everything that I'd learned from them as music producers, everything that I'd learned from Phil as a, as a mix engineer, sound engineer into my career. So I would say it was the foundation for my, you know, for me as, as a, as a sound engineer, as a music producer, as a songwriter, it was invaluable to sit with two guys that whether you like their songs or not, but, a hit is a hit. A number one is a number one for a reason. To have been able to s- sit with those guys creating something from scratch to have finished was just invaluable. I was very lucky to have been, to have witnessed that. 
and to you know just to to watch it just all evolve so yeah it was invaluable to me it's invaluable as a as for my for my own career Yo-Yo did remain at PWL for a little longer and we'll hear from him again when we reach the Rhythm of Love era and what it was like working with Kylie at that point. But his journey from 1986 to 1989 encapsulates the story we've told so far. Yeah, and I loved every minute of Yo-Yo's recollections. Imagine going to work and getting to chat about the meaning of life with Pete Burns in between takes or literally seeing the rise of pop icons like Kylie Minogue and Rick Astley firsthand. Imagine becoming friends with Donna Summer. Hmm. All these people seem like gods to me as a suburban teen at the time. And I really do respect Yo-Yo's take on what was starting to go awry as 89 went on. And so we'll finally move into 1990 with our next episode. Yes, sorry to drag it out. And that's going to take a look at Stockhek and Waterman's final UK number one single and its B-side. In fact, Mike Stock will join us for a special chat all about his approach to B-sides. And that will be followed by the single that many believe got things back on track for Saw in 1990, a song by this lady. Hi, this is Lonnie Gordon. I'm with Chart Beats and I'm telling my journey with Stock Aiken Waterman and happening all over again. Oh, so fantastic. We'll also share the results of our listener poll of the best Saw singles of the 80s. If you haven't voted, you have a little more time to get in your top three. And you can DM that top three ranked from one to three to chartbeatsau on Twitter or Instagram or email chartbeats.au at gmail.com. And if you'd like to chat to me direct, please tweet me at Mr. Matt Denby. And just finally, thanks to everyone who has taken the time to write fantastic reviews on Apple Podcasts in the last two weeks, including Madonna Matt in Sydney, Tommy in the UK, and the Ebony Enchantress in the US. Also, for those of you who don't know, Spotify now allows you to post reviews on individual episodes. So thanks for all the brilliant reviews that have been posted there already, including those by Poplifer73, Daniel, Pablo, Guy, Matthew and Ian, Matt, Michael, JK, and Zbornak. Many, many thanks. We do appreciate it very much. We sure do. So, everybody, see you in 1990. Bye.